Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. With me today is Dr. Maria Church, and you can find her online at drmariachurch.com and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Dr. Maria Church with no spaces or periods or anything like that. So Dr. Maria, thank you very much for joining me. I know that you have a focus on the area of leadership. I know that you do a lot of work with top corporate leaders and you work a lot with government and with, uh, you know, I I read a a little bit that you had written recently about the silver wave is coming and uh, (laughs) baby boomers retiring all over and, you know, what do we do about it? And, And so, you know, thank you very much for joining me on the Speak Like a Leader uh, podcast. And I'll, I'll let you just tell people a little bit about, you know, where you come from and why you care about this. And then we can just jump into talking about whatever comes up. That sounds great. I, and I don't think we'll be at a loss for words because leadership is, you know, I'm a leadership geek. So it runs through my blood. I get excited about talking about leadership and, and like maybe too excited. And some people are wondering, Hmm, well, that's an interesting person. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so as you said, I um, I work with primarily today. It's been local governments. Um, have a few corporate clients, but I'll I'll tell you, John. A couple of years ago, I made a decision to really focus on local governments for and for a number of reasons. One is that silver tsunami that you're talking about. You know, it's. I think it's hitting a lot of uh, private organizations as well, a lot of corporations, but I especially see it so prevalent in local government where a lot of the um, positional leaders throughout cities and counties are retiring and are baby boomers. Yeah. A lot of them. And, you know, within the next couple of years, 60% of local government employees will be eligible for retirement. 60%. I mean, that is a lot of people. And yeah. what's equally disturbing is that there's only 5% of current college students that are even remotely interested in public service. So yeah. that could lead us with a potential, you know, significant gap of people. And I don't know about you, but I really like having my garbage picked up. I like going yeah. to see bands in the, in the park play in the summertime. I like the police officers getting the bad guys and gals off the street. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of a scary thought because I think we take for granted um, that those services will just always be there. And so I saw a real need for leadership, um, you know, to, to develop leaders in that industry and also to help their cultures really transform from very bureaucratic structures to ones that are more innovative and flexible and malleable because of our current environment. You know, we're in a constant change and a constant flux of change. And so the old bureaucratic structures may very well have worked for a while, but are not working today. So we really needed to 
change very intentionally and strategically those organizational cultures from a leadership perspective to make them not only survive, but also more attractive to our young millennials that are in the workforce now? Well, you know, I was thinking about this a lot recently, a little piece of what you said, particularly because I just keynoted the Government Performance Institute's summit, Government Performance Summit recently. And uh, I was thinking about what I get for my dollars from, you know, I guess I'll name names. I had Xfinity as my provider, um, my internet provider. Not super happy with what I got for my money there. And then I thought about, you know, what I pay annually in taxes and all of the stuff I get. And I just think that it has become so, I think we're really taking government for granted. And there's been such a a cry of, you know, how bad government is and how bad they are with money and no more taxes and everything that people have really lost sight of just how much we get from government and what a great value it actually is. Yeah. And, and especially at the local government level, which is really our, our cities yeah. and our counties. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes they get lost in, in translation and sort of lumped in with big government. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's people, it's our neighbors and it's people yeah. that we, you know, that are in our neighborhood that we shop with, that we might go to church with that, you know, our kids go to school together um, and, and it's really, these are folks that are really giving back, you know, they're yeah. the ones that are really making a difference in our community. Um, and, and I'll tell you from just as from a business perspective, you know, I grew up in corporate, I worked for a fortune 500 for, um, 15 years, uh, led the sales and marketing mm-hmm. division for a land developer and home builder. And before that I worked for five years in local government. Um, which was really, really rewarding and and great mm-hmm. fun. Um, but I'll tell you when I when I was at um, at corporate, you know, I just I really felt a sense of like having to check my soul at the door, you know, that <laughs> I, I really couldn't bring my whole self to work. It was very compartmentalized, and yeah. and you know, I remember looking around and thinking, you know, there there's got to be a better way. Um, to lead an organization and, and to motivate people and to communicate with people, you know, in really um, important and powerful ways. And I, that's when I decided to uh, go back to school and I earned my doctorate um, in organizational leadership. Mm. So I took a really deep dive in leadership theory, you know, and, and was learning different models. I mean, a plethora of models And it was interesting, John, because I didn't really find anything that spoke to us um, as holistically, you know, mind, body, and spirit. And so I actually began my my educational journey then at this point, thinking about my dissertation. And I had decided that I was going to develop a new model of leadership that was really holistic in nature. Because mm. I didn't like checking my soul at the door. It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel whole. And so I developed love-based leadership, which is a holistic model based on three pillars, love of self, love of source, and love of others. And um, and what was really interesting is that 
when I started forming my committee, you know, interviewing different faculty, um, I I started getting some resistance from faculty Mm -hmm. for this dissertation topic. And I remember I was so frustrated that I think I might have actually pinned the um, dean up against the wall <laughs> at some point. And I said, what is going on? You know, I, I have so much support from my cohort and other colleagues to do this, but yet I'm getting this resistance from the university. And she very plainly said, Maria, I think it is a very important model. I think it's one that's needed. And I think you need to put that forward out in the world. But you have to wait until you have doctor in front of your name because the university won't support it. It's too controversial. Can you believe that? Love is too controversial. Well, And, (laughs) And you know what? How can you have a discussion, an advanced discussion of leadership and not talk about the most powerful force on the planet? Well, it leaves something to be, you know, it's the, it means the discussion's missing something, Maria. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that is in large part the the a huge amount of the standard discussion about leadership out there, which, you know, and and there are a lot of little places, you know, where where it, but it's almost in the side notes of everything, you know, like I I have definitely found that the best leaders that I've ever worked with and or supported are people who just genuinely love other people. And, you know, and yet I, it's too controversial. (laughs) Well, I uh, begrudgingly, you know, um, went ahead and and put it on the shelf because of course I needed to do my dissertation and graduate. Um, Mm. But I did eventually put it out there. 10 years ago, I published love-based leadership. Um, and this is kind of cool, John. I don't know if you knew this, but um, yeah. it is the tenth year, and I actually yeah. Yeah. Um, completely updated and revised it. And I have um, a brand new version, a brand new book coming out in December um, that is the tenth anniversary edition of Love Based Leadership: The Model for Strength, Grace, and Authenticity. Wow. And that's well, coming out very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let us know when that comes out and we'll put it in the show notes so people can find it immediately. Great. Yeah. I'll send you a link. Um, we're actually doing pre-orders right now on Amazon. So I'll be Fabulous. sure and send you the link for that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And so 10 years later doing the work, you know, both in corporate and um, in local gov, um, you know, I've seen a lot of love-based leaders emerging, and I've seen a lot of effectiveness when people are genuinely loving and caring and valuing, you know, right. their people. And of course, you know, we had the great privilege of hanging out together with about 30 other people that are jazzed about leadership um, on Necker Island last year. Yeah, and, that was amazing. you know, talk about a, a gathering of love-based leaders. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. seeing people like Sir Richard and, um, and, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, the third and, um, President Santos of, oh, of Columbia, I mean, gosh, all President talking Santos. about, yeah, the Stanley. power of love, right? Yep. Powerful, yep. powerful stuff. Yeah. Well, so, 
So let's say that you are working with an organization that's maybe a little bit not into the woo-woo, California woo-woo stuff, you know, can't really lead with like things like love-based leadership. Let's just say you're in that situation, even though you might not put yourself in that situation. What's What could somebody in that organization start to do to implement some of the things that you talk about? in a way that wouldn't necessarily garner the pushback that you actually got yourself in your, in your educational institution? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, not everybody is comfortable talking about love, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit, but I get it. You know, I, I, like I said, I grew up in corporate. So, so I (laughs) I get that. I understand it. Um, The really powerful thing about being a love-based leader is that you don't have to shove that down people's throats. You can lead in a love-based way. You can teach competencies and skill sets that are love-based approaches um, without saying the L word. Yeah. You know, and so um, that, that certainly is, is, you know, what we do. I mean, you know, when, when you look at the soft skills which I always kind of chuckle with too. The soft skills of leadership are usually the most difficult skills for people to um, to gain, <laughs> you know, yeah. and to really focus yeah. on. It's the it's it's like the the number one and number two challenges in nearly every organization in which I work is communication and trust, or trust yeah. and communication. You know, the order may change, but I'd have to say probably ninety six, ninety seven percent of of those organizations say those are their number one and number two challenges. Well, that's part of that soft skill set. Um, And so, you know, you can teach competencies, you can teach people um, strategies and actions and behaviors to build trust. Uh, We can teach people how to move from communication to really connection. You know, we can teach those kind of things and still not have to talk about the word love. So, you know, I'm very, I'm very aware of that. And I'm also, not um, tied enough to the ego that we have to talk about love. Um, what's most important to me is is helping teach helping teach that and helping um, develop those competencies, those love based competencies in leaders, um, so that they can make a difference. So there can be a ripple effect. That's what I love about local gov. You know, I can go into an organization and help them really shape their culture, um, and it's fabulous for the organization. But when we work in organizations like local government, that goes out into the community. You know, that just reaches further and further out in concentric circles. So it's pretty cool. But I also have to say, I've had on more than one occasion, um, uh, gentlemen in particular, who have approached me after a keynote presentation, um, where where I'm talking about love-based leadership, to come into their organizations and talk about love and trust and forgiveness and those kinds of things, which I think is pretty cool, pretty exciting. In fact, yeah. just a couple of years ago, there was a director of public works. So you might have like a mental image of, of what that person, you know, may look like or whatever, you know, and you're thinking it's, it's probably a pretty buff or brawny fella, you know, you might be just automatically going there. And that wasn't too far off from the description of this particular director of public works, And he had asked me to do leadership development with his team. And he said, specifically said, will you talk about the head and the heart connection too? (laughs) 
<laughs> I not said, absolutely. Great. Yeah. So, you know, some people are comfortable with it and others are, are not yet. I mean, and I think over the last 10 years, they're probably, I would say that that's become like a more, even though it's still kind of a controversial topic, I think it's become, it's breaking its way in, you know? Um, I completely agree. I wonder, was there a moment, Dr. Maria, when you were, because I was going to ask you when you went, so I'll ask you both of these questions. The first one actually prompted the second one that's probably more relevant. But when you, when you were getting your doctorate in, in, uh, at the university, um, what was one of the biggest surprises that you experienced in terms of what you had kind of thought going in and what you discovered once you were there? And I'm going to say that the, the possibly the answer is just how controversial love-based leadership would be. But what was the moment when you, you know, what was your aha moment about that? So it could be two separate questions or it could be that that first question just led to the second question. Yeah. So, so obviously that, that story that I shared with you was a huge you know, shocker for me that we couldn't talk about the most powerful force on the planet. But yeah. I have to say, it was really a whole bunch of little ahas that just reinforced what I intuitively knew seemed right. Um, yeah. And that I'm reading the experts, you know, a, a variety of experts, not just one person touting the same thing, but a variety of people who really, really went there and talked about the importance of not just communication, but real connection, yeah. you know, really yeah. connecting with people. Um, I read a lot about, uh, of course, the power of trust and a lot about the destructive nature of fear. And it yeah. really was such a, almost a validation as well as an aha that yes, this is truth. This is not only just you know, for a better humanity, but this is true for a better workplace, which of course, yeah. if it's going to mirror a better humanity, if our workplaces are full of humans, then, you know, it's going to mirror a better workplace. And right. I think the biggest thing that really struck me with aha was reading about innovation and learning about organizations that are very innovative and creative and why there are some that are and some that aren't. And mm. in particular, I read several studies done by two Japanese researchers, Nonaka and Nishigishi, who extensively studied innovative organizations. And they wanted to answer that question. Why were some organizations more innovative than others? And what they found was all of those organizations that were innovative had this energy, for lack of a better word, called BA, B-A. Mm -hmm. And what they found was in every innovative organization, BA existed. So cool. You know, now the, the begs the question, well, how do we get Ba to come <laughs> over to our organization and hang out, right? Good question, and, yeah. and so- they started peeling back the layers of those organizations where Ba existed, and they found that there were four organizational cultural elements in every single one of those Ba organizations. And those four elements was love, 
care, trust, and connection. So in other words, in order to be innovative in your organizational culture, you must have very prevalent love, care, trust, and connection. And that was a huge aha for me. Yeah. Because it was it was truth. It felt right. Yeah. It totally resonated with me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that uh if you if you want to say that each person has a, essentially a, a at some point a finite amount of of energy to expend in a day, if they're in an environment where they feel safe and they're not expending energy worrying about backbiting or how they're going to pay rent, they're going to have a lot more mental energy for innovation and looking at things newly. Yes. It, yes. And is that not trust, right? Because you're not yeah. worrying about somebody stabbing you in the back, um, yeah. you know, and it's connection because you're, yep. you're feeding yep. off of each other. You're trusting each other to be vulnerable. Um, you're in a safe environment where if you fail, you're not going to get a pink slip, you know, right. you're not out of here. Um, and that makes so much sense because, yeah. you know, it takes X number of failures before you innovate, right? <laughs> I mean, the innovation yeah. typically yeah. doesn't happen right out of the gate. So, you know, if you're in an environment where you're going out on a limb and somebody saws the limb off, you know, you're not going to go out on a limb again. It's just no. not going to happen. So it's so simple, you know, it's so simple and yet we've made it so complex and, yeah. and, and, you know, we've, we've made things much bigger than they need to be. If we can just almost go back to those basics of love, care, trust, and connection. Mm. And, you know, you can't have love and fear happening at the same time. You, you, know, you know, one is the antithesis of the other. Agreed. And I think we are, you know, up to our eyeballs um, with fear. I think we've just had enough, you know, well, we're done. You know, I, I don't mean to sidetrack us, but I guess that's kind of why we're here, right? Is to pursue interesting avenues. So if there's anything you want to come back to, put a pin in it, because I want to ask you an, a question and I don't want to sidetrack us from anything else you wanted to say. Yeah. And I just finished reading this book by a guy named Brian Hare. And the funny thing is I met Brian, to me, the funny thing is I met him several years ago at this conference called the EG conference, which was kind of like, it was a conference put together by some of the people who had originated TED. So it was very TED-like. And uh, I spent quite a while talking to him. And when I, you know, while we were talking, I told him all about this fabulous theory called the cooperative eye gaze theory and how awesome it was. And I was just going on and on. And when I was all done, he looked at me and he gave me this big grin and he said, that's my theory. And it turns <laughs> out that it was his theory. He was one of the co-authors of the paper. And so that work has progressed and transformed into this book that he just released that I just I highly recommend it. And it the the bottom line is that we human beings in the in the upper paleolithic there were multiple versions of humans. There were Neanderthal and and uh, Homo Denisovan I think is how you pronounce it and Homo sapiens, right? And all of a sudden in the upper paleolithic they all died out and we just took over the world. 
And the question is like, what happened? And it turns out that according to his book in theory, we self-domesticated. And long story short, we became, we gained the ability to be good to each other, even, even outside of our very smallest groupings, you know? And so, and, and I think you, I'm sure that it's a term that's probably broad, more broadly known than I realized, but the theory of mind, we all human beings all have theory of mind, which means that we can imagine what other minds are thinking. Yeah. Well, we developed theory of mind. Like we have theory of mind for both negative and positive acts, but fundamentally our closest relatives, you know, great apes, chimpanzees, let's say, they have theory of mind when someone else is trying to take their stuff or when it's competitive, but they don't get theory of mind when it comes to cooperating. So fundamentally we self-domesticated and it made it and got very, very good at cooperating with each other. And one of the chemicals that, uh, that facilitates that is oxytocin, right? The bonding chemical, the bonding mm -hmm. hormone. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize is that it's a two-edged sword. And that bonding chemical is also the chemical that shuts down our prefrontal cortex when we are looking at others, in quotes, who we feel threatened by. And, you know, and the leaders of our group over here are saying they're animals. They're not even human. Right. Well, when we feel threatened by another group, <coughs> oxytocin, excuse me, oxytocin just shuts down our prefrontal cortex and we have no, they're, they're like, you can watch people's brains in an fMRI machine in real time as they are, you know, doing their thing people lose all cognition that that is another human being. And that's why we're able to have genocide. And it made me really clear about what I think is so wrong with politics today. And I've, I'm saying right here, right now, it's going to be public whenever it's public, but I'm saying it, I'll say it other places before I am going to watch myself really carefully and not use dehumanizing language. I'm going to speak out against any, politician that uses it. And I will not vote for or support anybody on any side, no matter what their politics, if that's their stock in trade. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it is. Yeah, no, no. Oh my God. So fascinating. So you didn't tell us the name of the book. The name of the book is survival of the friendliest. Oh, I love that. Isn't that fabulous. Oh, survival I love that. Yeah, I will definitely. Uh, and it's, I'm such a bibliophile. It's like, oh, a book, you know, a lot of yeah. <laughs> a lot of other people I know. And I certainly had my time where I was like, oh, shoes, you know, or oh, handbag. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And for me, it's like, oh, book. <laughs> my husband's yeah. like, oh, God, I not another it. book in the house. Um, but yeah, that sounds great. So, so many things were happening in my mind as you were going through this. And, you know, I could really, I mean, we all have seen, you know, especially in the United States, um, you know, over the last probably 12 months in particular has really escalated the divisiveness of, yes. of our country and, you know, sort of the cracking open of, of injustices that have been happening and people are speaking out and up about it. Um, 
and and yet it's it's so interesting because you know while we have have and historically have had certain levels of divisiveness you know something like the you know the tragedy of 911 and and you know all of the destruction that was happening you know in DC and and Pennsylvania yeah. and certainly yeah. in New York City that when the people were there showing up helping you know, race didn't matter, gender didn't matter, sexual preference didn't matter. None of that mattered because we saw each other as other as additional humans. Yeah. And so it was that that oxytocin that clearly took over. And and of course the way the world responded to us, even yeah. even people that we weren't on friendly terms with, you know, politically yeah. um, and globally, it, you know, that that always rises. You know, yeah. fear is powerful. There is no doubt about it. And probably many of us have seen, and maybe some of us have even used fear as a strategy to motivate people in a direction because it does work. Fear does work. But the problem when, you know, it has its that, it, Yeah. It, 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 and there are times when, when that might seem the appropriate strategy or technique. The problem is they forgot to tell us that it comes with a price. So if we leverage fear or if fear was leveraged with us, we mm. know that that price is lack of loyalty, certainly mm -hmm. lack of trust, yep. definitely lack of communication because it doesn't feel safe anymore. And then we start planning our escape. Yeah. You know, we start beefing up our LinkedIn profiles, we start our networking, we start daydreaming about it's got to be better somewhere else. And, and, you know, fear, again, it works, it has worked historically. But I'll tell you, and we know this, in the end, love always trumps fear, it always does, it is yeah. still the strongest force out there. Well, and you know, just just so I'm just so anybody listening is really clear about what I meant. There is a gift of fear is a gift, right? We don't get afraid unless there's something to, well, we do now, but, but I mean, fear keeps us alive. Fear yep. gets our attention, right? So, so, but, you know, in a leadership context, I just don't think that the command and control fear your leader kind of thing, that just doesn't seem to me to have legs. No, it and it's not sustainable for sure. I mean, let's yeah. let's make this real. So, you know, um, suppose uh, a team worked on a project, they sent in the final report, yay, we're celebrating, and then they get they get it back, and it's all wrong, absolutely all wrong, and they have twenty four hours to get it right. Now, the leader could choose a couple of different strategies. Two come to mind. One of them could be that the leader says, oh, holy crap, um, we're all going to lose our jobs if we don't get this right in the next 24 hours. So if you want to keep your job, you got to just plan on an all-nighter here. Okay, that's one strategy mm -hmm. and probably uh -huh. one that happens a lot. Another strategy is, wow, we missed the mark. We've got 24 hours to make this right. I'll call for pizza. Can somebody send out for coffee? And let's let's see how we can get this done. Yeah. And people are going to show up. The end result could very well be the same, but people are going to show up differently for that, right? It's going to well, be a different energy level and probably a different commitment to, to getting the job done. And there's neurobiology that would suggest that people are going to be far more creative and innovative in the second scenario than in the first. 
Oh, of course. course. Love, air, trust, and connection, right? Yeah. (laughs) And all of that energy is going to get used up first for freaking out about what to do because now I'm going to lose my job in 24 hours, right? Sure. Right. So, you know, definitely I think the second version works better in, in, in the long run, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and again, if we, if we have to show up in a creative way, we've got to remember, you know, what it takes to get Ba to show up there um, to help us be creative. Right. Yeah. So um, I have to ask you because, you know, I shared with you, um, you know, my clients typically say that um, trust and, and communication are their two top challenges. And I know you're such a passionate person about um, communication um, does that surprise you? And no. if not, why do you think we're challenged when we're in the communication age? I mean, we've got communication yeah. ability 24 seven, right? Well, I mean, in a way that's the problem, right? Like it's all the shiny new toy and the, and the bad examples that we've seen. And, you know, what I say, Dr. Maria is that communicating with human beings is not logical. And people always laugh, you know, that, like, yeah. Well, it's not. It's not logical. It's biological. And if mm. you, you want to be truly successful, logic is necessary. Yes, you've got to have a plan that works or else let's just not even talk about it because those people don't make it in the door. We're talking about already high-functioning organizations or groups or whatever. So, Logic is necessary, but that's kind of table stakes. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And communication and trust are absolutely inextricably entwined in my book because where trust comes from is the part of the brain that's really old and ancient and does not have access to language or logic or reason but it mm-hmm. does have access to reality on a fundamentally deeper level than we'll ever have access consciously. It smells things like pheromones. It sees facial micro expressions, notices all the absolutely unconsciously sent and received body language, all of that stuff. And that is the part of the brain that at the end of the day must give what I call the, the, the fourth and most important yes you know, when people get, they go in and they pitch or whatever, they try to raise money and they get the yes, 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 no. Well, uh-huh. that's easy to explain in, in, in hindsight. People get very upset about that, but it's simple. Yes, yes, yes. Logically, they were in. You had the logic. No. So yes, 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 no. Logic, 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 emotion. We didn't make the emotional connection. And that's because most of what we see modeled in the work world, especially other places too, most of what we see modeled is not only not what works when it comes to communicating with human beings, it's almost 180 degrees the opposite of what works. You know, I don't want to show any weakness. I'm not going to let my emotions come up. I'm not going to let people know anything about me personally. Like, okay, who's going to ever trust that person? Sorry. Right. Right. Because they're not human. It is our emotions yeah. that that really um, make us these beautiful humans. And you're absolutely right. We will never truly connect 
You know, when we're talking about communication, yeah. what we're really wanting is connection, right? Yes. People yeah. confuse com- information distribution is, is communication, and that's not it. Communication yeah. is how you get me. You understood me. You yeah. heard me. Yeah. I heard you, you yeah. know, and that's that emotional component, 100% yeah. the emotional component. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's funny. I just, I was working with a client this morning, actually kicking off a uh, full year culture initiative to really shape their organizational culture to accurately represent who they are and who they want to be as a county. Yeah. And um, we are starting with why, you know, we have to get really, really clear on why we want, why, why this organization exists, why we chose that particular organization why we chose the job that we did within that organization. And yeah. I kicked us off with watching that, um, the golden circle Ted talk. Right and, yeah. You know, yeah. Totally talking about that part of our brain. That's the emotional yep. part. And, yep. and unless we reach that emotional part, there is no connection. And that's no hence connection. the yes, 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 no. Well, and you know, look at the biology of it. The, 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 neocortex, the new brain is wrapped around the ancient paleomammalian brain. It's wrapped around the outside. So for logic to get to the spinal column, to take action, like signing a check or standing up and volunteering or, you know, whatever, it has to go through the emotional part of the brain, the ancient part of the brain. Even if the logical brain's all in, Uh it's, still got to go through that ancient part. And that is all about the emotional connection. If you don't have that, you don't get that fourth and most important. Yes. 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 I totally, I totally agree. hundred percent. But it's so, it, that's so not, not what we see modeled very often. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, and, yeah, that, and again, we've complicated it. We've really complicated. I mean, you think about the communication process. There's a sender who has an intended message and they send it to the receiver and they receive the message. So that's a pretty simple process. But of course, those of us that have been challenged at different times of our life with effective communication know that there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle called noise, right? And it's the noise that keeps us from really communicating effectively. And so we really have to be very mindful and consciously aware of what that noise is, you know, and it can be obviously the literal noises, but Mm. can also be those figurative noises. Like my mental model might be different than your mental model. My perspective is probably different than your perspective and, and being, having that level of self-awareness to recognize that, Oh, my perspective might not always be the right perspective, you know, and that's the vulnerability part. And so if we're in an environment or we're of the belief that we're in an environment where we can't be safe, i.e. we can't be vulnerable, we will never have effective communication because we've stopped that and blocked that emotional part of it. Exactly. And everything else that anybody wants at that organization is now going to be you know, hamstrung by that. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something really profound earlier that trust and communication are forever entwined. Yeah. And so I I just loved, because I agree with you, but I'd love to get your perspective on that, that interrelationship of communication and trust. Well, you know, I, 
so I think first of all, the the that that trust arises in the ancient part of the brain. Trust is an emotion. It's not a logical construct. And so we trust people when they communicate with us what the, their emotional connection to whatever it is we're talking about is. When we understand where they're coming from and why they care, now we have a place to begin to trust them and a, a place to connect with them, a place to begin to feel like we're in the same tribe. And that's the genesis and the, I think the, the core nugget of trust. And so if people aren't willing to communicate who they really are and why they care and that kind of, that kind of thing, then I just think we never get that initial seed or, that trust can then begin to accrete on would be how I'd say it. Would you agree or what do you yeah, think? No, I, I was, I was totally there with you and it made me think about uh, a, a point that you made, made me really think about that phrase. I don't care how much, you know, uh, until I know how much you care. It's fundamental that look that that is absolutely, in my opinion, the bottom line. The mm -hmm. bottom line, you know, Maria, I worked with general. Well, I I guess I can't say that I worked with a large large corporation on their global summit a few years ago, and mm -hmm. everybody wanted to get up on stage and establish their credibility. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. Like, look, they paid a million dollars for this stage and they put you on it. Like your credibility is established. Stop it. We'll just ruin <laughs> your credibility with that. What, what I want to do is it's what I work with. Everybody I work with on Maria, I, we find their superhero origin story. And it's not about being a superhero. It's about being your origin, right? Why you care. And I had each of them construct, come up with a story and we, we, we made it really well told and we polished and everything, but they were all, just little vignettes about why they cared about what they did now. You know, one guy showed himself sitting next to this really gigantic thing that he had been a part of designing and back in the eighties. And so his hair was hilarious, you know, and everybody gave this little personal nugget about why they cared about what they were doing now at this large corporation. And it was the best event they'd ever done. The woman told me. And, and people, it would ju they just couldn't believe the amount of connection and people ran to the breakout sessions instead of running away from them. And I had to think about it for a while, but I, what I, I think my next book is going to be called this. We didn't establish their credibility. What we did with those little personal stories that were purposefully crafted and well-told was establish not their credibility, but their emotional credibility. Nice. And after that, nice. everything, the world's your oyster. Once you really authentically, it cannot be a manipulation. It has to be Absolutely. real. But once Absolutely. you actually do that, the world's your oyster. These stories are like a red carpet that just roll out in front of people and just smooth the way for everything that they do and anything they want. Yes. You know, it really is establishing their connectability. Yeah, because people absolutely. now can connect with them, they relate to them, their relatability, you know, and especially with successful people, yeah. you know, air quotes, right? It's successful yeah. people, and certainly with leaders within an organization, we somehow with the title, um, or the prestige, we somehow almost 
dehumanize them. Uh, and and not in the same way that we were talking about earlier with dehumanizing and marginalizing, you know, different groups of yeah. people. Yeah. But we do, in a sense, dehumanize and make them, uh, you know, like superheroes. Yeah, yeah I think we um, put them on a pedestal. We yes, okay, good, good. Yeah, we superhumanize them, and so they're up on this pedal now, this pedestal, and yeah. and in our yeah. eyes, then they they are um unrelatable because yeah. they're superhuman now they're yes. not relatable and and you know heaven forbid that that they fall off the pedestal by doing something human and it can right. be very you know um damaging to that team or that organization and so you know what is it going to take for us to really celebrate and seek out that authenticity in leadership so that the perceptions, the relatability, the connection can still be human to human, you know? Well, you know, it's a really good question, Dr. Maria. And, and two thoughts I have are for both sides of that equation. So for the person that's the leader like that, that's one of the things that I work on really, really very hard with people is making sure that they become aware of how they appear to others from the outside versus how they think they appear or how they might feel about it. And mm -hmm. then making sure that they that they very consciously understand how to humanize themselves, connect with people, start to open up some vulnerabilities. And there's a, a term I'm trying to coin called insightful vulnerability and vulnerability with some insight, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and share those places where you fell down and what you learned. And, and so for the person in the leadership role, if they're doing that continuously, they're going to be decreasing that problem they're going to they're going to be taking away that that you know superhumanization as much yeah. as they can and on the other side of the equation i become really convinced maybe looking at myself as an example that we attribute that superhumanist to others just so that we can get out of doing the work to be that good, you know? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but perhaps you're onto something. That's there. how we get off the hook, man. Like that guy has natural <laughs> talent. That woman is just naturally good at stuff, you know? Yeah, know that, you know what? Steve Jobs practiced an hour for every minute he was going to be on stage after they wrote the talk. Mm. 45 hours of practicing a 45 minute speech. Like, I, you know, anybody would be pretty good. Mm hmm. At that point, but nobody wants to do the work. So Steve is a natural communicator, you know, uh -huh. so I think that it's, you know, both sides can take some responsibility for that. Yeah, um, no, that's a great, that's a great point. You know, I think that, that the authenticity, in fact, you know, the work that you do that you describe, that's exactly why I felt called um, to write that book, you know, about leading with love, about love-based yeah. leadership. Because I felt that that compartmentalization that I believed was expected in the workplace, and I was certainly taught that that's how you led, you know, you compartmentalize all these different parts of yourself and you never, you know, bring your whole self to yeah. work. Yeah. It just was never authentic. 
It was no. never authentic. And no, I'll it's tell you, a disaster. It is. I remember a very chilling um, event uh, when I really, really came into awareness around how how crazy that kind of thinking is. Yeah. And um, one of our one of our employees um, at the organization, her daughter, who was like nineteen or twenty, died in her sleep. Oh. I, I mean, it was horribly oh. tragic. You know, death oftentimes is, uh, but especially yeah. so when it's a young, you know, young person so like young, that. Right? Yeah. And uh, of course, it, it just shook our, the employee, her mom, to the core. And yeah. we closed the office. We closed all the offices down the golf course, the country club. Everything was closed down so that we could all attend the funeral. Um, and I remember in church, you know, everybody was crying, whether they knew this mm. young woman or they just were crying for her mom, you know, in mm-hmm. the pain. And I remember I was, I was starting to cry. And John, I, 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 I realized, oh my gosh. And I was in a senior leadership position and I realized, oh my gosh, I am with the people that I work with and I'm with my team, you know, that I lead yeah. and they can't see me cry. And I shut it down. Oh, I just shut it down. And I remembered feeling almost chilled by that chilly, you know? Um, And, and if anybody would have seen that happen, I'm sure it would have been visibly noticeable. Yeah. Because I sat up straighter, you know, and I was emotionless. And can you imagine if somebody who maybe didn't know me that well, or maybe somebody that did, what they were thinking in their mind, what a cold hearted person that is, you know, well, but no emotion. But it is what I think many people think is expected of them. And I think it's an absolute horrific disaster. I think we die younger because of it. I think we die more often. I think people aren't fulfilled. I think people feel, you know, they they quit their job and feel rudderless or they feel rudderless at their work. I mean, how crazy is that? That's crazy. This is it's, it's insanity. It is truly insanity. And I was very good at it. And I realized that's really nothing I should brag about publicly. But I was very, very skilled at that. And I'll tell you, I paid the price. You know, um, I ended up I had horrible IBS for years. Mm -hmm. Horrible. I ended up having to get 18 inches of my colon removed my intestines. Yeah, Um, I ended up with cancer breast cancer a few years Mm. after that. I mean, Mm. it doesn't take a rocket science to know a rocket scientist to know that if you shove your emotions down and you become a superhuman or non-human, then you, um, your body will eventually say enough. Yeah. Had enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very destructive and not only emotionally and spiritually, but physically very destructive to really continue, um, leading like that. Well, I'm, you know, it sounds like you have uh, changed your ways and you're making amends now, which I'm, I'm very happy about. (laughs) And, you know, I I don't know if you know this, Dr. Maria, but I, you know, my last big.com company was a company called bigwords.com. And we raised over $80 million in the dot-com days. And then in the downturn, our investors pulled the plug and we went out of business. 
and I almost died of an autoimmune disease and then had a really rocky, not fast recovery. And one of the big realizations I had was that an autoimmune disease is me attacking myself with my own body. And where was that start? Now, look, it was real. All the symptoms were real. Every It was coming from someplace. It was very real. And I really took on that it was all starting in how I was being with myself mentally. Uh-huh. And really went to work on loving myself and letting go and forgiving myself and letting all that uh, shame and guilt and and you know, anger and sadness, right. And yeah, you know, I think now like this is maybe one of the things maybe we should, you know, have another conversation sometime soon, but I think that this is one of the places where love-based leadership probably runs into a whole lot of headwinds is I don't think I, I realized, I don't think I can be a safe space for anyone else if I'm not truly a safe space for myself and really (laughs) love and forgive myself first. Yes. That has just made an enormous difference in everything from my success to my health. And it sounds like we have a a very strong resonance in that. Yes. I I wholeheartedly agree. Um, And in fact, the first of the three pillars of love-based leadership is love of self. Yeah. It's well, that just makes gotta be. We gotta get ourselves, we've got to get ourselves together <laughs> from the from the aspect of loving ourselves. And and within that, you know, I specifically talk about seven factors of of loving ourselves. And and that's everything from intuition to truth telling to truth yeah. receiving, you know, recognizing our power of choice. Too often we we play victim. Yeah. And and we always have the power to choose at the very least our attitude, you know, perception shifting, I I think is one of the strongest tools in a leadership toolbox is the ability to perception shift and look at situations and opportunities from a variety of angles and, and how we show up and, and health and wellness, you know, we're smart people today. We have a lot of knowledge, um, but yet we put better gasoline into our cars oftentimes than we put food into our bodies. So, you know, it's really, really, truly, what does loving ourselves look like? And it's far beyond bubble baths and pedicures, although I'm a big yeah. fan of the yeah. bubble bath and the pedicure. But, yeah. you know, it's much more than that. It's much more substantive than that. And like you said, that forgiveness and 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 just really tapping into who we are authentically. Um, and what brings us joy and and peace and happiness is just so key, which of course takes us right into the love of source. You know, it's like once we start really loving ourselves, and then we connect with, you know, that that uh, essence, that vitality um, of something greater than ourselves. You know, that's where inspiration comes from, and perseverance, and peace, and love. I mean, it's the heart center, right? And then if you can imagine, you know, loving yourself and then connecting with source, whatever that source is for you, mm-hmm. then the automatic extension of that is love of others. Yeah. And that's where, you know, forgiving other people come into play, building trust, creating knowledge, you know, collaboration, shared power, shared ownership, you know, all of those aspects of 
really loving others, loving the people that you work with, loving the organization for what you're doing, what your mission is, and and how you're changing people's lives and impacting people's lives. I mean, that's the juicy kind of stuff that gets us out of bed on Monday mornings. Yeah. Yeah. And on Tuesday when it feels like Friday already. <laughs> yes, we've of- had a couple of those. You know, it's so funny. I once I, I once heard somebody refer to um uh being in COVID, being in the sixth month of March. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounded like a pretty good description there. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I love that. That's so funny. This is six months yeah. of March. <laughs> You know, but, you know, I mean, we all have days like that, right? But it really is that connection with our taking us back to the very beginning of our conversation, that deep, deep connection with our why. Yeah. You know, just you know, let me right ask a question there. about that. Because it might be a painful story and and you know, this is a safe space if you want to or not to tell us, but I'm starting to think I might have some insight. I'd love to hear what the real story is about how you went from compartmentalizing and just shutting yourself down to be at this big land developer corporation. And then obviously it probably paid pretty well and you were senior, you know, leader there. So what was the moment when, when you made that change and what do you mind telling us about it? Is, is it, it seems like a significant moment, I guess. Yeah. I think that was a really significant moment for me to be aware of that. Um, And and I actually uh, started working with a, a therapist because uh-huh. I, I, I felt such an uneasiness. And like I said, I felt like I checked my soul at the door. Yeah. And um, what she did, um, ironically enough, is she helped me reconnect with my emotions. Oh. And she taught me how to cry again. Wow. Um, and so that's kind of the short version. And that was around the same time I, I wanted to earn my doctorate and go back to school because I felt there was something more. I just, yeah. I, in my heart, John, I just felt that there was something more. And yeah. um, and I really felt that that set me on the trajectory and on the path that I'm on today, which is really, I mean, my personal why is, you know, shifting the workplace from fear to love. Great. That's great. I'm behind you on that. I, I support you fully. Now, did your, did your, did your physical issues have any impact on your decision or was that? Um, So my physical issues, I I became aware that they were really tied to that um, emotionalist compartmentalized way I was living. I really understood that. Um, And that the, the, uh, the surgery to, to resection um, the intestines, you know, the 18 inches that were removed that yeah. actually happened shortly after I left corporate and started my own company. And uh-huh. then um, two years later is when I had breast cancer. So I had already left corporate. Mm. Um, but I think what was happening is, you know, the damage was done and it was, it was coming out literally, it was literally coming up and coming out. You know, yeah. I had just really centered myself. I would have to say spiritually and emotionally, and what was left was to take care of it physically. And so yeah. that illness, um, that insanity, really physically had to come out of my body at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I would think that 
probably you leaving that toxic situation was what had you live through all that. Yeah. And I can honestly say, had I not, I would probably, we wouldn't be having the conversation today. Yeah. Because I don't think I would be here anymore. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you that's know, how but, profound that was. And, and so what would you say to someone, Dr. Maria, who's in a situation and they're going, Oh my gosh, I know exactly what she feels like tomorrow. I've got to go into work and check my soul at the door. I don't know what I'm going to do help, you know, what would you say to them? Wow. That's a great question. And my short answer, since we're almost at an hour, I'm looking, it's like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe an hour has gone by. Um, so really my short answer is that I would ask them to really get very clear on their personal why yeah, and, and very clear on what would feel authentic for them in the way that, that they, if they felt the freedom to show up in their full authenticity, what mm. would that look like? Because I think sometimes we self limit ourselves yeah. and, and if we, if we got really clear with what, what our authentic leader looks like, our authentic worker looks like, then I would say, try it out. You know, try not to self regulate um, and self limit to really show up in a way that's authentic for you because they might find that their authentic self um, is welcomed. Well, you know, yeah, you, you made me think about the fact that, uh, you know, one of the things I always work with myself and work with other, with leaders on as well is talking to people like they're great, no matter how they're being in the moment and one of the keys to really having that turn out is to never be the one to stop, right? Like I will talk to you like you're great and you may get it this week or next month or next year, but I'm going to do my darndest to talk to you like you're great till you get it. Now, in the meantime, if you're an employee of mine and it's not working out, I might have to fire you, but I'm going to fire you in a way that honors your greatness, acknowledges your poor performance here and says, I hope you find the place where you can really shine. And I think that how that ties to what you just said is it's entirely possible that there are people that everybody at the corporation feels like that. And if you're the first one to stop checking your soul and you show up with your soul and you start living into who you really are and what would authentically work and make you happy and be the, what felt good to you. It's just possible. You could foment a revolution there and maybe the business would actually, and probably the business would be wildly more successful doing something better and hmm. you could start it all. Right. And if it's not well received, is that really the right fit? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> because who wants exactly. to be in a place where they can't really be their authentic self? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, and it's scary to be in that moment and it's really scary to think about all the what ifs, but I really, really believe deep in my heart and soul that what you want, what you genuinely actually authentically want, wants you. Mm, I and love that. I remember hearing that the first time and I just got goosebumps to my ankles and believe me, I was not in a place where what I had was what I really thought I wanted. You know, things have 
I've shifted a lot of stuff since then. And I think that that really helped me a lot. And I would offer that to anyone who's listening who feels trapped in that check your soul at the door place or any place else, you know, what you want wants you and the universe needs you to go get that and go pursue that instead of giving all your life energy to something that's not good for you or for it. I love it. Well, that's just a beautiful note to end on, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, and what a lovely, lovely trip to have gone on with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. And, oh, it's uh, been my pleasure. Like I said, you, do you want to talk about leadership? I am so there. Um, it, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. You're super welcome. And, and you know, we'll look forward to doing it again sometime. Love it. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome.